The scripture lesson today comes from Revelation 22, verses 6 to 21, the last words of the book of Revelation. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoers still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, so they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Would you be seated? So today we come uh, to an end, to the end of our semester-long series in the book of Revelation, a series we've entitled Famous Last Words, uh, because this last, of the book of the, this last book of the Bible is certainly famous. It's famous for the intrigue it has received. It is famous for the interesting interpretations it has attracted over the years. And now we come uh, to this last sermon, which is entitled The Last Word. So it's the last word of the famous last words, which kind of gives it an even more heightened significance, right? And this made me start thinking this week about other famous last words in history. Uh, I, I, may, I may have spent just a little too much time Googling these uh, this week. But here's some of my favorite I wanted to share with you. Some of my favorite famous last words. <laughs> this one's great. A French grammar expert named Dominique Bowers is reported to have said before his death in 1702, I am about to or I am going to die. Either expression is used. Even in death, the grammar matters, apparently. Maybe you've heard this one, Marie Antoinette. The Queen of France, before her execution in 1793, on the way to the guillotine, stepped on her executioner's foot and said, I did not do it on purpose. And those were her last words. A lady to the end. And then this is my personal favorite. 
Karl Marx, the German philosopher, before his death in 1883, he said to his housekeeper, who was asking him, like, is there anything you want to say before you die? Karl Marx said, go on, get out. Last words are for fools who have not yet said enough. It's a mic drop. I don't know. Uh, I don't know if you have memorable last words that have been spoken to you, maybe before a death or a departure of some kind that are that are special to you. But what I want to put before you today is that these these words that we just read are some of the most special last words you will ever encounter as a Christian. These are the last words of the Bible. These are the last words of the Book of Revelation. And the main question as we come to Revelation 22 is, what do we do? What do we do with this revelation we have received? What do we do with everything we have heard and seen over the last 21 chapters? What should our response be? And if you remember, if you've been with us, or if this is your first day dipping your toe into the book of Revelation, I want to remind us that the purpose of the book is to give the struggling churches on earth a glimpse on the other side of the veil. That is to see their circumstances on earth from the perspective of heaven. That's what revelation means, to pull back the veil and unveiling so we can see our life from the perspective of God. But it has been no ordinary perspective because it is not written in prose. It's written with fantastic signs and symbols. And that means it's not just giving us information, it's giving us imagination for our plight on earth. So, for example, the churches have been depicted throughout the book of Revelation as lampstands because we are to give light to the world. Christ dwells among the lampstands, but he dwells among us as a lion and a lamb, which means he's the Almighty who suffered for us, ahead of us. The enemies that threaten the church on all sides, either through fierce persecution or through false preaching, they're depicted as dragons and monsters and harlots. And yet Christ is depicted as conquering the world with the sword of his mouth, which means through the powerful story of his redeeming love. That's how he's doing it. It has been quite a revelation. And the question now is, what do we do with it? I don't know about you, but it's felt for me a bit like after watching um, any Christopher Nolan movie. (laughs) Uh, You choose Tenet or Interstellar or Inception, you get to the end of it, you're like, that was amazing. What does it mean? (laughs) I'm not sure I understood it. What am I supposed to do with this? And thankfully, Revelation 22 comes along and tells us what to do with all, what to do with this revelation. The last word of Revelation can be summarized as this. What do we do with all that we have seen and heard about the gospel story? Believe it and keep it until Jesus comes again. That's the last word. That's the takeaway for the church. Believe it and keep it until Jesus comes again. The last word is a word of exhortation. It's a word of hope. It tells us how we should live in the present and what we should expect in the future. So first of all, the last word is to believe it. Notice there's actually a threefold testimonial evidence in this, in this passage that the revelation that we have heard is true. The first one's in verse 6, the angel, who is the heavenly messenger of the revelation. He says, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. 
So the angel messenger verifies it. And then secondly, in verse 8, the apostle John, the earthly messenger, who received the revelation from the angel and wrote it down for the sake of the church, he also testifies. He says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. So the human agent of this revelation verifies it also. And then finally, in verse 16, Jesus himself testifies about it. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. It's kind of like Jesus' resume. He's proving the validity of his witness. Both of these expressions refer to the fulfillment of the messianic promise. That Jesus is the king who makes all things new. And in him, the dawn of the new creation has begun. And just in case we missed it, he says it again in verse 20. He who testifies to these things, Jesus says, surely I am coming soon. So Jesus also verifies it. Friends, what's happening here is that the biblical legal standard of verifying the validity of any testimony, of any story, is being employed. Truth, if you read the Old Testament, truth must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses for it to be valid. So this revelation, everything we have just read is being verified by three witnesses. An angel, a human, and God himself. It's kind of like we get to the end of Revelation, and, and even like the authors, there's some awareness that some of the things contained in this revelation are, shall we say, out there. They're difficult to believe, especially for modern listeners. And so the lingering question as we come to the end is, how would anyone believe this? How will you believe this? And so God brings out the tried and true biblical way of verifying the truth of any story. The testimony of three witnesses. And all three of them, the angel, the apostle, and the Messiah, are all saying with one voice, this message comes from God. It has divine origin. And therefore, you can believe it. Friends, this, is, this applies not just to the message of Revelation, but to the message of the whole Bible, the whole gospel. Right? There are some pretty unbelievable things, aren't there? There's a God who is three and yet one. There's a Son who is divine and yet human. He's the one who died and yet rose again, who promises to come again to judge the living and the dead. We believe in a perfect life that credits all who believe with right standing before God. We believe in a sacrificial death that gives to all who believe full forgiveness of all their sins. We believe in a church that is so weak and foolish, and yet they, the Bible says contains the very wisdom and the power of God. Who would believe any of this? Well, the answer, according to Revelation, is a multitude that no one could number. From every nation, every tribe, every people, and every language. Why? Because this story is not from men. It's from God. And therefore, it's completely true. It's given to us in love. I heard a pastor recently reference a book that is now on my to-read list. The book is entitled, Three Big Questions That Change Every Teenager. And the premise of this book, I haven't read it yet, but... I, read enough online to know that the premise of this book is that the deep heart questions that people are asking change from generation to generation. And so whereas previous generations were asking good questions with things like, is God real? And is the Bible true? 
How does science and religion mesh? According to research for this generation, today's generation is asking three main questions. Who am I? Where do I fit? And what difference can I make? These are, these are questions, deep questions about identity, about security, and about purpose. And man, I, I don't think these are questions just teenagers are asking, right? We're all asking these questions. Who am I? Where do I fit? What difference can I make? And my question is, to answer these questions, is there any authority above you that can help you answer these questions? In other words, who is the ultimate authority that is qualified to answer such profound questions? Is it you? Is it me? Am I qualified? Even though I frequently spill salsa on my shirt? Like, do you want me telling you the answer to these things? Are any of us qualified to answer the most critical questions of life? Or is God, the all-knowing, the all-wise, the all-powerful, the all-loving, perfect creator and redeemer of heaven and earth, should we listen to him? We tend to look at our car manuals because we assume that the people who made the car probably know how it works best. Shouldn't we do the same with the world? That the one who made everything and everyone probably knows how it works best. That's what all the witnesses of Revelation 22 are trying to say to us. They're saying, you can believe. You can believe this because it comes from God. Bring all your deepest questions about life to him. You can believe him. So first, we are challenged to believe it. Secondly, we are challenged to keep it. And again, there's a threefold ex exhortation. Notice verse 7, blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Then in verse 9, the angel says, I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, with those who keep the words of this book. And then though he doesn't say it, say it directly, so much of the language of Jesus' promise to return again is his promise to reward those who are doing what? Keeping the words of this book. The point is, this is what it means to believe. To believe it is to keep it, to live it. We are not just hearers of the word, we are doers of the word. See, to believe it is to keep it. And what does it mean to keep the words of this book? I, I think the answer is beautifully illustrated for us in verse 8. Because for the second time in this book, the first time was in chapter 19, and now in chapter 22, for the second time, John, the apostle, gets so overwhelmed with the wonder of the message that he has received that he just has to worship. And so he starts to fall down to worship the angel, the heavenly messenger. But for the second time in this book, the angel says, you must not do that. Don't do that. I'm just a fellow servant like you. Worship God. But sisters, I think that's what it means to keep the word of this book, to worship God and God alone. And the flip side of that means to avoid idolatry, which is to worship any created thing in the place of God. So to not keep these words is to fall into idolatry. To keep these words is to worship God. And I believe this scene where John almost worships an angel happens twice in Revelation because that is the main struggle of the churches in the book of Revelation. The temptation to idolatry. For John, it's interesting, his temptation was to worship the messenger 
instead of the God of the message. Eugene Peterson, in his book on Revelation, he elaborates on how this is still a temptation for us today, especially with our favorite preachers. Peterson writes, It is not surprising that from time to time we find ourselves in awe, worshiping some particularly attractive messenger of the divine. St. John was not exempt, falling on his face twice by failing to worship rightly. Still, it is not to be treated indulgently. Rebuke must be immediate and stern. Get up. Get on your feet. Worship God and only God. Angels, prophets, and fellow Christians stand on the same level and kneel together on the same ground as worshipers. It struck me this week for, I mean, to give you a very immediate and practical application. For many of you, I have been your main preacher. I have been your main voice speaking the words of God into your life in recent history. And I'm leaving you next Sunday. And whatever you think of my preaching, some of you are probably happy about that. Whatever you think about my preaching or those who will preach in the interim or whoever becomes your next primary pastor and preacher, the message is we are all just messengers. And we all have one message. Worship God. Worship God. No messenger. This actually protects us when preachers we love fall or leave, or otherwise disappoint. Because this assures that your faith does not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. To worship the messenger is like being in awe of the telescope, instead of what the telescope points to, the glorious heavens. Peterson goes on to show another way that we fail to worship God, the God of this revelation, which is how we get caught up in all this fantastic speculation about revelation. We try to avoid that throughout this entire series. But listen to what Peterson says. It's so apropos. Peterson writes, It is difficult to worship God instead of his messengers, and so people get interested in everything in this book except God. Losing themselves in simple hunting, and intrigue with numbers, speculation, speculating with frenzied imaginations on the times and the seasons. But nothing is more explicit in this book than it is about God. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ, not the end of the world, not the identity of the Antichrist, not the timetable of history. See, we are not to be in awe of the envelope that the message comes in. We are in awe of the message. And we worship the God of the message. Worship God. That's how you keep this word. But if you remember, for the churches in Revelation, those seven churches laid out in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, if you remember, each of them was also had a temptation. And their temptation was to compromise their faith through cultural idolatry. They were tempted to worship at the altar of God, yes, but also were pressured to worship at the altar of Caesar and at the altar of various pagan deities of their local trade guild. If you didn't, then you risk persecution from the state or ostracism from your peers. And therefore, we must hear these words as spoken one more time to the churches. Worship God and God alone. To worship God alone is costly, but it is how we keep the words of this book. Brothers, this is not just a first century challenge, is it? It's a challenge for us today as well. There's always the temptation for the church to worship God and to worship our cultural idols. 
It's actually Satan's strategy to compromise the church. Listen again to Peterson. The satanic strategy is to normalize Christians into a homogenized pudding of good citizens who really should try to get along with each as best they can. When this work is successful, everyone becomes a Christian in such a way that it makes no difference. I don't know about you, but I feel this today as a Christian, don't you? Yes, we must worship God, but we are also asked to tip the cap to all the other cultural idols in order to stay in their good graces, to the identity idol, to the political idol, to the national idol, and so on and so on. That's actually what that warning is about in verse 18 concerning not adding or taking away from anything in this book. Jesus is saying, don't add or take away from what God has said. Don't mix in idols to your worship. Worship God. And so John's last word here is actually the same as the literal last word in his letter called 1 John. The very last verse of 1 John is, little children, keep yourselves from idols. That's the negative way of saying worship God. Positively. Do not be pseudo-believers. Do not be duplicitous. Do not have a divided heart. Worship God. And so if the question of point one was, is there any authority above us telling us what to believe? The question for point two is, is there any idol above God in your affections that you are tempted to love and serve alongside him? If so, John says... Cast it down. Throw it away. Worship God alone. Only he can give us a clean robe. That is, only he can make our souls clean. Only he gives access to the tree of life. That is the life that is truly life. Only he gives the water of life that truly satisfies. Brothers and sisters, this invitation stands for all times to one and all. The spirit and the bride say, come. Come worship the true God. Let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. So how do we respond to this revelation? By believing it, by keeping it, and lastly, until Jesus comes again. Once more, there's a threefold repetition of this promise. Verse 7, Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Verse 12, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. And verse 20, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Now, soon does not mean shortly. It means quickly. Meaning when he does come, it will be quick. It will be unexpected, like a thief in the night. But soon also means that in the calendar of God for Christ to return is the only thing left to do in the story of salvation. The next event, the next episode is his return. That means in God's calendar is Saturday afternoon and our eternal day of rest is imminent. Friends, this is the last word is a word of hope. Jesus, of seeing Jesus soon. And that is what makes all our believing and our keeping worth it. On the day when our faith becomes sight. No more questions. No more doubts. 
No more struggles to believe. No more trusting in the words of a book you will see with your own eyes. You will hear with your own ears. You will know the embrace of God. And when he comes, Revelation 22 says, He will do what is right. He will repay the faithful with what they most long for. That is his very presence. And he will repay the unrighteous for what they most long for. And that is to have nothing to do with God. Yes, there are those who are outside the city of God in the end. But just like in the beginning, just like in the Garden of Eden, those who would not heed the word of God must leave the special presence of God. Those who rebel against him will be given what they want, which is a life apart from God. As C.S. Lewis famously said, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. But you know what else is left outside the city? All evil. Every ounce of evil. That means no more school shootings. It means no more grocery store shootings. No more weapons of war. No more war. No more church abuse reports. No more injustice. No more pandemics. No more mourning, crying, pain, or death anymore for the former things that passed away. And God will wipe every tear from every eye. Brothers and sisters, the world longs for this, whether they know it or not. The church longs for this. And that's why the bride says, come. The spirit longs for this. The one who knows our pain and intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And so the spirit says, come. And you long for this. And you are invited into their cry, come, Lord Jesus. And until that day, we have the grace of God to help us to believe and to keep the word of God until he comes again. And that's why the, the last literal word is the word of grace, to sustain us in our hope. May the grace of Jesus be with all people. See, from beginning to end, our life with God is grace upon grace upon grace. So today is Ascension Sunday. It's that day we celebrate all the benefits that we have because Jesus went back to heaven. All the benefits we have that he's not here. Because he is seated on his throne, because he intercedes for us, because he sends us the Holy Spirit. It is good for us that he is there in heaven. Brothers and sisters, even on the very first Ascension Day, there was a promise of the hope that he's going to come again. Acts chapter 1 verse 10 says, And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And that hope is repeated throughout every page of every, every page of the New Testament. Every page of scripture, the hope is repeated in Revelation chapter 1. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. And then finally, that hope is resonated for us in Revelation 22. These are the famous last words of Jesus. Surely I am coming soon. 
to which our longing hearts reply, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Brothers and sisters, that's what we do with the book of Revelation. That's what we do with the Bible. That's what we do with the story of the gospel. We believe it. We keep it until Jesus comes again. Amen. Let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, I thank you uh, for these last words you've given to us. I thank you for your word, period. That we are not left to guess who you are or what you have done in the world to create and to save, to redeem all that there is. Thank you, Lord, that you are not hiding, but you have revealed yourself to us in, in Christ and in the holy pages of Scripture. Lord, I pray as we look at this story that your grace would help us to believe it, that we would see we are building, we are building on solid ground for our faith, a house that can stand through the wind and the waves and anything this world throws at us. Give us that kind of faith. Lord, help us to keep it. Help us to live it. Help us to throw our idolatries away and to worship God and God alone. And Lord, give us the hope. You will come again to make all things new. Lord, as we feel the weight of the pain and the sufferings of this world, help us to believe that you say this is but a moment. That our suffering, in compared to the glories that is to come, is but a moment. So come, Lord Jesus. Come to us now by the Holy Spirit and help us and come to us one day and make our faith sight. And pray in the name of Christ. Amen.